Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up right here, coming to you from WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host your podcast each week as we look into the political things going on here in the United States. And I'd like to welcome everybody, including a special welcome to our friends over in the UK, courtesy of Mint Wave Radio. We appreciate you guys checking in with us. Uh, please keep it up and let us know what you think about the show. All right, let's get right into it, everybody. Uh, as always, we start with an update on where we are here in the U.S. with the coronavirus, a.k.a. COVID-19. And we keep you informed on this because it is something that we do need to stay focused on as a nation and as individuals uh, in this country. So for right now, for this week, we are at 80.6 million cases. 988.6 thousand people have died from the disease and 561.8 million people have uh, received at least one dosage of the vaccine uh, and or second doses and boosters, etc. Uh, but we continue to move that needle forward, and we need to keep doing that. So uh, on the news front, something came across uh, my my radar this week, and I wanted to bring it along to you guys. On uh, April 14th, the Associated Press reported that the Food and Drug Administration had authorized the emergency uh, use authorization for the first ever breath test for COVID-19 infection. And the article, as I said, from the Associated Press uh, states that the Food and Drug Administration on Thursday issued an emergency use authorization for what is said to be the first device that can detect COVID-19 in breath samples. Uh, the Inspect IR COVID-19 breathalyzer is about the size of a piece of carry-on luggage, the FDA said, and can be used in doctor's offices, hospitals, and mobile testing sites. The test, which can provide results in less than three minutes, must be carried out under the supervision of a licensed healthcare provider. Uh, Dr. Jeff Shuren, director of the FDA's Center for Devices and Radiological Health, called the device yet another example of the rapid innovation occurring with diagnostic tests for COVID-19. The FDA said the device was 91.2% accurate at identifying positive test samples and 99.3% accurate at identifying negative test samples. Uh, Inspect IR expects to be uh, able to produce approximately 100 instruments per week, which can be used to evaluate approximately 160 samples per day. The agency said at this level of production, Testing capacity using the Inspect IR COVID-19 breathalyzer is expected to increase by approximately 64,000 samples per month. Uh, that's a pretty interesting and exciting development in that uh, rather than the, number one, the 15-minute wait for the um, nasal swab type test, whether it's you know, in a medical office or at home, uh, this test will be available, you know, you get answers in three minutes. Uh, I, I can see where, you know, there may be some uh, places and some applications for this uh, coming out. Uh, it, it's, a, an, again, as they say in the article, it's a, you know, exciting addition 
to the toolbox that we have in battling the COVID disease. We'll keep an eye on uh, the progress with this device and let you know how it's going. Uh, but as always, you know, if, if you haven't been vaccinated, if you haven't, if you've been vaccinated but not boosted, uh, please get that done. The newest variants, uh, the uh, BA2 variant of the Omicron virus, and you know it, it's clear that there is likely to be more variants coming as we move through the summer and the, the season of high interaction with people uh, in in public spaces, and then you know into the fall and winter where you know we're all enclosed in spaces and so forth. You know, we need to make sure that we are taking all the precautions that we should be taking to keep ourselves, our families, our communities, and our country safe. So uh, word to the wise there. Uh, make sure you're doing what you know, we all know by this time, what the, what the protocols are. We've talked about them on this show probably uh, 50 times or more in, in the last year uh, as to what needs to be done. So... Let's make sure we're doing that um, and, you know, let's do what we can to make sure that we're keeping everybody that we care about uh, safe and healthy. All right. So moving from COVID-19 to other uh, medical related news, but definitely uh, news coming out of the political realm. Uh, I brought this story up on last week's podcast um, where the announcement was coming about about the anticipation of a new law that was moving toward getting uh, the governor's signature in the state of Kentucky. Well, it seems like that law is uh, has been signed and you know is now uh, coming into effect. Uh, what this law is, it's a uh, law to block abortion access. Uh, beyond 15 weeks and you know this comes out of the news story uh, comes out of Reuters uh, from April 13th and basically it leads off Kentucky effectively suspended legal abortion access on Wednesday as the legislature enacted a sweeping anti-abortion law that took effect right away and forces providers to stop offering abortions until they can meet certain requirements now this, you know, stepping out of the story for a second, and I brought this up last last week as well. Um, this looks like it is going to be the pattern of the uh, Republican-led opposition to uh, the protection of a woman's uh, right to determine and and terminate a pregnancy if they they so wish. Um, you know, and you know it. It's leading to just another state falling in line with what we've seen come out of Texas and Mississippi and so forth, uh, and and also as we'll talk about in a minute in Florida. So back in the article, the impact of the law makes Kentucky the first state without legal abortion access since the 1973 Supreme Court case Roe versus Wade established the right to end a pregnancy before the fetus is viable, abortion providers say. Uh, abortion rights advocacy groups said they will challenge the bill in court. The law impo imposes requirements that the state's clinics say make it too logistically difficult and expensive to operate, including a provision 
requiring that fetal remains be cremated or interred. The calls for, it calls for a combination birth hyphen death or stillbirth certificate to be issued for each abortion and it bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Um, so, you know, uh, again, you know, as we've seen in other states, um, you know, the, the conservative slash Republican uh, leaderships in many of the states are, are trying to set so many restrictions and roadblocks as to make the process of getting an, an abortion or terminating a pregnancy uh, nearly impossible uh, for both uh, the healthcare providers to do and for the patients to receive. Uh, the Kentucky law also did not include exceptions for abortions in cases of rape or incest and said it was likely unconstitutional because of the requirements uh, that it imposed on providers. Uh, according to the governor, uh, Andy Bashir, uh, who is a Democrat, by the way, uh, he said, rape and incest are violent crimes. Victims of these crimes should have options, he wrote. Uh, the legislature also, in addition to this uh, veto that Governor Bashir put in place on this law that they overrode, they overrode several other bills, uh, including a bill banning trans girls from playing girls' sports. Uh, that's a subject we are going to uh, dive into in an upcoming show, uh, as that one's also very controversial and has, you know, the, the potential for a, a pretty substantial impact uh, on our school age and, and college age uh, children, you know, participating in sports and other activities. Um, but getting back to this legislation, uh, the Two provisions in the abortion legislation hinder the state's abortion clinics from operating, and this is according to Planned Parenthood of Kentucky. Uh, the first is a requirement that the state's Cabinet for Health and Family certif Services certify providers who dispense abortion pills. Until abortion providers are certified, they are prevented from offering medication abortions. The second is a requirement that fetal remains be cremated or interred, which places logistical and cost burdens on the clinics that they cannot sustain. The bill also bans telehealth for medication abortions, requiring an in-person doctor visit for patients seeking to end their pregnancy by pill. So, as you can see, as I said, you know, the, the number and, and complexity of the obstacles that Republican legislators and, and lawmakers are placing on the, the act of a woman exercising her federally protected right to an abortion uh, to make it so that while it may be federally protected and legal at that level, at the state level, that it is going to be illegal. So, you know, it, it stands to reason that there are court battles uh, to come uh, with this. A lot of this is going to rest on what happens in the Supreme Court uh, in the coming weeks as they take up the case out of Mississippi, which, similar to what Kentucky has done, bans abortion uh, beyond uh, 15 weeks with no exceptions. 
uh, and you know has has been challenged in court, and that challenge has made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, who is expected to hear arguments, as I said, in the coming weeks. Now I mentioned earlier, you know, that we also had uh, some activity going on in Florida related to you know uh, abortion bans uh, after 15 weeks. And you know, Governor Ron DeSantis on April 14th, the report from the Associated Press, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a 15-week abortion ban into law on Thursday as the state joined a growing conservative push to restrict access to the procedure ahead of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that could roll back abortion rights in America. Uh, according to Governor DeSantis, he said, quote, this will represent the most significant protections for life that could have that have been enacted in this state in a generation. Uh, and it should be noted that he signed this bill at an evangelical church in the city of Kissimmee. Uh, Republicans nationwide, you know, as the article states, have moved to place new restrictions on abortion after the U.S. Supreme Court signaled it would uphold a Mississippi law banning abortions after 15 weeks. The high court's decision expected this summer could potentially weaken or overturn Roe v. Wade, excuse me, the landmark 1973 decision that established a nationwide right to abortion. Uh, so the new law, which takes a place, which takes effect on July 1st, contains exceptions if the abortion is necessary to save a mother's life, uh, to prevent serious injury or if the fetus has a fatal abnormality. It does not allow for exemptions in cases where pregnancies were caused by rape, incest, or human trafficking, despite several democratic attempts to amend the bill. All right, so, and, and this modifies uh, the, the Florida law reducing the length of uh, time to get an abortion from 24 weeks down to 15. So, you know, it, it, as I said, there are more and more obstacles and restrictions and hoops to jump through that are turning the process of getting an, you know, an abortion, which is protected under federal law, uh, is making it extremely difficult, if not impossible, uh, in the state where the, the, the patient resides. So you can you can be okay under federal law, but you can be arrested or you know prosecuted or fined or jailed uh, in your state for you know having a, a pregnancy terminated through abortion. And there have been a couple of stories in the news um, where you know uh, one woman uh, that I, I recall reading about. Uh, was fined $100,000 and given 10 years in jail for a medically induced uh, abortion that she obtained. Uh, and, you know, it, it has sparked a discussion on, you know, whether or not even the, the fact of a naturally occurring miscarriage may, you know, be uh, subject to examination and perhaps punishment under some of the laws that are being um, brought forward. Although, you know, number one, I'm neither a lawyer nor a doctor, but I don't understand how that can be possible. Uh, we will check into that. We will follow up on the stories and get back to you in a, in a later episode. 
Um, and it's, you know, it, it's clear it's not just these states. I know I keep talking about Florida. I keep talking about Mississippi. Uh, now we're talking about Kentucky. But they, these, these laws and this legislation is moving through legislatures uh, across the country, uh, particularly and especially the ones that are under Republican control. One estimate has that there are at least 500 uh, bills uh, going through various stages in state legislators, legislatures, excuse me, in this country uh, dealing with uh, some form of fashion or restrictions on getting abortion or an outright ban on abortion in that state. So, you know, the, the battleground is already laid out. This is going to be a long uh, and, and convoluted battle. Um, and, you know, as I've said before, um, as, as the father of, you know, daughters and grandfather of granddaughters and so forth, um, I think I, I am very much uh, in, involved with and concerned about these laws that impose these kinds of restrictions um, on, you know, my, my daughters and my granddaughters. Uh, my nieces, uh, you know, all across the line. Um, in, in particular, one that, that I, I find very difficult to fathom is the, the concept of not allowing exceptions for rape or incest um, cases. Uh, there was one article, and I think I brought it up on a, on a prior podcast, where uh, the law required parental uh, approval from one or both parents before a minor could get an abortion or get a pregnancy ended, which could put, you know, a, a young female in the extremely awkward position of having to go to the person that uh, either, you know, raped her uh, or, you know, what, or, or was, you know, the perpetrator of the uh, incestuous act that uh, got the young lady pregnant in the first place to get his permission in order to end that pregnancy. Um, you know, it, it really cries out for the question to, you know, conservative and Republican lawmakers, um, why, what is going on? Why are you, you know, why are you exercising this this draconian practice uh, in, in the case of someone who has already um, suffered you know a huge physical and emotional uh, attack uh, to force them to go through uh, further emotional strain, let alone the fact that you know if if they can't get the pregnancy ended that they've got to carry this this child to term. And then what are they going to do with it? Um, you know, they, they may be too young uh, to, to adequately care for a, a child. Um, they may have other uh, economic or, or social circumstances that would make it extremely difficult. Uh, they may still be residing with the person who was the perpetrator of this in the first place. Uh, so, you know, what, what's going to become of these children uh, who are required by law to be brought to term? Um, you know, is, is someone from the 
the pro-life side of the the equation? Are they going to step up and adopt these children? Or are they just going to become wards of the state and increase the the social, the physical, uh, the infrastructure, and the economic burden that, you know, taking care of these children uh, is, is going to incur? I mean, we already have hundreds of thousands of children in this country awaiting adoption uh, from infants all the way up to teenagers, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, We also have the situation where, you know, when when a child who is uh, a ward of the state reaches the age of 18, uh, they are, you know, they are uh, an emancipated or a free adult. So they are no longer a ward of the state. So they are released out into the world. Uh, hopefully, they have received some preparation for you know being out there. But you know, basically, they're you know kicked out the door and said, "Okay, you're on your own. Um, you know, make it work as best you can." Um, you know, there there is just so many angles and and difficulties that these laws are creating that I'm not hearing discussions on you know what this country is going to do about it it's not something i have heard uh you know state legislators uh discussing it's definitely not something i've heard you know uh federal level uh legislators either in the house or the senate and i haven't heard anything come out of the the white house regarding what's to be done with these children who are going to be born into these circumstances um you know, and and how we are going to take care of them as citizens of the United States. You know, once they are born, they are a citizen of the United States with all the rights and privileges that are supposed to go along with that. Which which brings this situation fair, you know, definitely into the realm of our practice activism uh, philosophy, where we need to be uh, pulling together. And identifying, you know, uh, the the source of, of issues, and you know, promoting and suggesting solutions to our elected officials, and encouraging. No, encouraging is not the right word. Uh, demanding is the right word. That they take action on this. That you know, these children who are going to come into the world, um, you know, through no real fault of their own. Um, to either be raised by, you know, a, a, a family situation that may not be optimal, you know, and so forth. So, you know, we need to be having conversations with our elected officials, um, definitely at the state level, because this is where this situation uh, really uh, hits the ground. This is where the rubber meets the road in this, in this scenario. So we need to be talking with our state legislators and saying, you know, all right, if you decide to eliminate the uh, ability for a pregnancy to be terminated in this state, what is going to happen to the children that are born as a result of this? Uh, what is to be what is to happen to these children uh, in situations where the mother, the mother's family uh, or there is no support structure? Uh you know, is there a sufficient amount of room in, you know, state adoption agencies and, and orphanages for these children that are, are going to be coming into the system? And are we prepared to you know, take on 
the financial expense of you know raising a child from essentially birth to to the age of 18 and you know all the associated activities and requirements that go with it so you know that's a conversation that we need to be engaging with our elected officials on one of many that we need to be uh, engaging them with so the the question is and, and I, I get asked this from time to time all right so you know I, I give you the the what we need to do whether it's call to action or you know the the practice activism philosophies that we have here on this show um, but you know, I, I guess, okay, I understand the what. Um, the question is how. Well, how we bring this message to our political leaders, uh, especially now that we are in the midst of campaign season, is we go to, you know, their campaigns or we go to their, their websites or their social media and we pose the questions, you know, uh, Mr. or Ms. Uh, candidate for office. So, you know, you have stated that you are in favor of the, um, the, the bans or the restrictions that are being placed on abortion in our state. Uh, what is your plan for what's to, to happen to, you know, the children that are going to be born uh, out of these situations uh, who may not have a solid family structure to take care of them? Uh, what, are, what are we going to do about those children? What's your plan on how we address to adequately house, clothe, feed, educate, uh, and, and teach them what they need to know to be you know, upstanding citizens in our country? And we need to pose that question to them at every opportunity we get until we get an answer. So, you know, that, there's, there, there it is. The activism we need to practice is to communicate uh, what this these these abortion bans uh, around our country or, or throughout our country are going to create and the call to action for our elected officials is essentially what are you going to do about it how are you going to address the needs of these new citizens that are going to be born into our country um, it, you know if we do nothing at all uh, we are going to have you know, a, a generation or two generations or more of, you know, adult people who vote who are going to ask the question, you know, looking back on how I, you know, my life, I realized that I was thrust into this with no real plan. So, you know, they're going to hold our elected officials, they're going to hold us accountable for, you know, whatever the, the, the drama or trauma that, you know, has happened in their life. Uh, so it's something to think about. Uh, all right, let's, let's take a break. Um, as usual, we want to talk about uh, the COVID situation and what we need to do about that. We'll be right back here on Fired Up uh, right after the break. I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, America's doctor. And all across our nation, we've taken steps together to slow the spread of coronavirus. Now we must continue to take personal responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Because even though not all of us risk a severe case of coronavirus, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others, maybe without even realizing that we're sick. 
So if we want to get back to school, back to work, back to worship, and back to overall health, there are things our country needs to do. We need to follow state and local guidelines, take extra precautions if at higher risk, wash our hands frequently, stay six feet from others when we can, and when we can't stay six feet from others, please, I'm begging you, wear a face covering. These small actions will make a big difference. So I'm asking you to say it with me, America. Coronavirus stops with me. You can learn more at coronavirus.gov. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. And welcome back. Thank you for listening to that public service announcement from your friends here at Fired Up and from the good people at WJMS Media. Um, I want to get into a, a different type of subject. It's not necessarily one that we haven't discussed before, but the context around which I want to have the discussion uh, over the, the course of um, this year uh, in particular, but you know the, the month of April, month of March, um, I want, want to talk about uh, gun violence in this country and the, the political uh, and social ramifications of what that involves here in the United States. Um, as, as you know, and as I, I've said before, uh, I am a believer in the Second Amendment. I do not uh, think that there is a need to make changes to the Second Amendment as it is written. I think where we have uh, issues and basis for discussion is some of the, the um, things that orbit around the Second Amendment. Uh, we have seen uh, efforts you know, uh, from various political leaders over the past uh, few years, actually over the past you know, 20 years, um, talking about you know, aspects of you know, gun ownership in this country, uh, including such things as uh, you know, strengthening the laws we have and enforcing the laws we have uh, on you know, gun possession by convicted felons, uh, which is something that has, has been a longstanding problem in this country. Uh, we've also had discussions here on this show, and, and I've heard discussions in, on other platforms about the notion of uh, obtaining weapons in general. Uh, it is more difficult to purchase a car than it is to purchase a gun. You have to go through more qualifications in order to drive a vehicle in this country uh, generally than you do in, in order to possess and use a firearm. Uh, we've talked about you know, gun violence from the standpoint of you know, police shootings of uh, civilians, uh, notably people of color, but uh, civilians in general. We've talked about how uh, many of the laws are unequally enforced. Uh, where you know, if in, you know, we can we can cite cases, but probably the 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 poster child case for it, you know, is the the Kyle Rittenhouse case, where you know, here's a a young man who traveled across state lines, which is a crime, carrying an automatic rifle, which is you know even more of a crime, and you know, using it to kill and wound. Uh, people who were uh, peacefully protesting, 
and then proceeded to walk down the street uh, past law enforcement, letting them know that there had been people that had been shot uh, and, you know, traveled back to his home. Uh, there was another case where a young man was uh, involved in a shooting at a location and uh, the police, uh, you know, got him food and water uh, and, you know, uh, allowed him to sit, you know, un, uh, unhandcuffed, undetained. And, you know, while they, you know, discussed what had happened with him. And then you contrast that to, you know, things like the, um, the, the, the killing of, you know, many people of color down, you know, down in Atlanta, uh, the young man who uh, fought with a police officer, managed to uh, get his taser, uh, turn and, and fire that taser, uh, basically, you know, emptying it uh, at law enforcement and then proceeding to run away and was shot in the back and killed. Uh, when, you know, clearly uh, it was not necessary to, to kill that individual. They knew who he was. They had his identification. They had his vehicle. Uh, he was known in the community. Um, I say that to, to talk about the fact that we have seen a rash in the past few weeks, particularly, of uh, shootings. Um, you know, we had the gentleman in New York who uh, opened fire on a subway uh, after releasing two smoke grenades. We've had, uh, you know, shootings in various locations where individuals have opened fire in a crowd or, you know, at a nightclub or a venue or an event and killed multiple people, uh, you know, and as the investigations proceed and we get details on, you know, how they got their weapons, where they got their weapons, how many weapons they have, uh, as these details come to light, we see that, you know, in, in this country, we have a, a gun problem, and it is, it is more revolving around uh, the things that people are, are, you know, modifying their weapons to do, uh, are you know using their weapons for uh, sometimes you know it is necessary uh, to protect yourself and your family uh, from deadly harm and in that case yes the use of a firearm uh, can be warranted uh, and is protected under law you have the right you have the under the law to protect yourself your household and your family uh, by whatever uh, force is necessary to stop the aggression. Um, where it seems to get sticky is in, in some of the things orbiting around the fringe of the Second Amendment. Uh, notably, we've seen an uptick in the number of so-called ghost guns uh, being obtained. And if you're not familiar, uh, a ghost gun is a weapon that is built from constituent parts. Uh, in, in most cases, these parts are non-serialized. That is, there are no serial numbers that are provided or recorded to identify the weapon and identify the purchaser. 
thereby making this essentially an untraceable weapon. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the prevalence of this, this gun violence that, that I've seen over the past uh, few weeks in particular uh, has, has made this an, an issue I wanted to bring up here on this show uh, from a, the, the political as well as the social uh, standpoint. Um, from the social standpoint, you know, it, it's clear that there are individuals, you know, in our country who, for, you know, various reasons, whether it is um, a, a situation of, you know, their circumstance, they, you know, they exist in a violent world, uh, you know, there may be, you know, perceived dangers that they have about, you know, where they live and, and so forth, and they believe that the only solution is for them to get a weapon, uh, even if they are not, you know, legally qualified to have it, uh, and then subsequently to use that weapon to uh, injure and, and kill others, uh, you know, for, for some perceived uh, slight or some, you know, some problem that they believe uh, has been created. Now, I'm not saying that to justify uh, these individuals, you know, shooting other people. Um, but, you know, if someone is not mentally capable uh, of exercising the, the adult level control that's needed when you own a firearm, then, you know, that's a problem that needs to be addressed from a legal as well as a medical standpoint. And what we have seen is when such legislation uh, has been proposed, whether it's at the state level or at the federal level, there has been an overwhelming pushback from, you know, lobby groups and special interest groups, the NRA and so forth, to, uh, to, to uh, stop this legislation from moving forward, even though everybody agrees, including the, you know, the NRA and including these advocacy groups, that there are people who should not own weapons, but when we try uh, through our, our legislative process to create uh, laws or rules governing access to weapons and you know who should who should have them and what these weapons are capable of, uh, we get you know a, a, a huge backlash, um, particularly from you know conservative but not exclusively. Uh, you know, arguing that you know, we, we can't impose restrictions on you know, the, so, the so-called Second Amendment rights of American citizens to have and bear arms. All right. So the, the argument isn't whether or not uh, you know, lawful citizens can lawfully uh, possess uh, weapons. The arguments are around what those weapons are capable of, that is, you know, self-defense weapons. Uh, you you know you don't you don't need a hundred round clip. Uh, you know for self-defense. Um, you know, and increasingly we see these very high-powered automatic weapons being used uh, against you know either unarmed or much lesser armed individuals. Um, that, again, in my opinion, just is, you know, an, an over, uh, 
an overblown response to to the problem. Now, that being said, and fully understanding, you know, that this is a controversial position and that there may be many out there who uh, don't agree with my premise. um, And I do encourage you to, you know, communicate with the show, you know, our email address is firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, send me your thoughts. Let me know what you think about the current status of our Second Amendment privileges and the, um, the extensions that, that flow from it. And, you know, give me your argument as to why that is okay. Um, I want to go through... A, a few stories uh, in a lightning round fashion, just kind of hitting the headlines and, and a little bit of the text um, that I found in the Associated Press when I did a uh, search for gun violence. Um, and I just on the ones that have come out since the first of this year, uh, working backwards. So um, in... Uh, in Virginia, um, the Virginia Commonwealth University uh, was granted a $1 million to study Richmond gun violence. Um, they received a federal, federal funds in the amount of $1 million to study gun violence in Richmond, Virginia, as the city experiences an increase in the number of homicides. Uh, up in Washington on April 14th, and again, all these are coming from the Associated Press uh, Spokane, Washington leaders looking for solutions to a spike in shootings. After four people were wounded in two separate shootings in Spokane last weekend, civic leaders looked to police chief Craig Meldy for answers to the city's apparent rise in gun violence. Um, in Seattle, Washington, shootings have increased along Washington freeways, and this is from April 9th. The Washington State Patrol is warning drivers of an uptick in freeway shootings, attributing the trend to a general increase in gun violence. The Seattle Times reported in King County, the state's most populous county, 20 shootings on interstates or state routes have occurred so far this year, according to the Washington State uh, Patrol. Um, Down in Alabama on April 7th, Uh, Coming out of Montgomery, Alabama lawmakers on Thursday approved legislation aimed at resisting a half dozen executive actions by Democratic President Joe Biden to combat gun violence. The Alabama House of Representatives voted 68 to 28 for legislation that now goes on to uh, the governor's desk. Um, Out of California, uh, this is dated April 5th. Um, California may empower citizens to sue over illegal firearms. And uh, the story, the, the headline and the byline reads, Stung by a deadly mass shooting Sunday mere blocks from the state capitol, California lawmakers on Tuesday advanced an innovative new approach to get gun control that would empower private citizens to sue those who traffic in illegal weapons. And, you know, Coming out of the story for a second, of course, that sounds uh, very familiar to the uh, Texas anti-abortion ban where private citizens are being empowered to, um, to uh, civilly sue 
uh, people who traffic uh, in illegal weapons. Um, a, uh, out of St. Louis, uh, a wounded boy is, age nine is the latest St. Louis violence uh, victim due to guns. Uh, and this is from April 2nd. A nine-year-old boy has been wounded in St. Louis as gun violence continues to extract a heavy toll on the city's youth. Um, in March, uh, Senate advances effort to resist Biden gun actions. And this comes out of Montgomery, Alabama. Alabama lawmakers on Thursday advanced legislation aimed at resisting a half dozen executive actions by President Joe Biden to combat gun violence. Uh, the Alabama Senate voted 24 to 5 for legislation that would prohibit state and local officials from participating in the, quote, administration or enforcement of any presidential gun control order, close quote. However, the bill includes an exemption if doing so would jeopardize, jeopardize federal funding. An interesting uh, take on that. Yes, we're going to resist whatever you're going to do to try and, and, and tamp down or control you know, our weapons, uh, but we're not going to mess with the money. Um, out of Milwaukee, police, uh, quote, no arrests in triple homicide case in Milwaukee. And this is from March 28th. Uh, the article talks about autopsies are expected to be done on the bodies of three men found fatally shot in a Milwaukee apartment building. Police continue to investigate and say no arrests have been made in Sunday's homicides. Uh, out of uh, Washington, and I assume because I don't see a, a state listed that it's Washington, D.C., uh, feds, federal, I'm sorry, forced reset triggers are machine guns under U.S. law. Uh, what this is, is federal officials are notifying gun dealers that some forced reset triggers, which allow guns to fire rapidly with a single continuous pull of the trigger, are considered machine guns under federal law and subject to strict regulation. Uh, Washington state governor signs bills tightening gun rules. And this comes out of Olympia. Washington Governor Jay Inslee signed a package of bills Wednesday tightening the state's gun laws, including a measure that bans the manufacture, distribution, and sale of firearm magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition. And again, stepping out of the article on this point, uh, this has been something that has been proposed in many different state legislatures around the country and every time has met with a, an, an overwhelming backlash uh, from gun enthusiasts on you know, the fact that they, they do not want restrictions to limit uh, the magazines in their weapons to holding just 10 bullets. Now, you, know, you, can, you can weigh the arguments on you know, the effectiveness of a gun that holds 10 bullets uh, as opposed to a gun that holds you know, 15 or 20 or 100. Uh, that's subject for you know, much more discussion. All right. Uh, New Orleans. Police are investigating five shootings within a 10-hour span amid a deadly surge of gun violence. Uh, the recent spate of shootings have left three people dead. And this is reported by a local TV station, WWL. Um, all right. Um, Steve Ballmer 
who is uh, the billionaire philanthropist um, associated, I believe, uh, either currently or formerly with Microsoft. Um, he crafts a new funding strategy to confront gun violence. Uh, and gun violence in America is a public health crisis that is worsening with pandemic-like speed. So says Steve Ballmer, the billionaire philanthropist whose nonprofit is devising a new remedy to address it. Uh, out of Washington, uh, key Democratic senator pre uh, presses Biden for more urgency on guns. A leading Democratic senator is calling out President Joe Biden to show, quote, more urgency, close quote, to address gun violence by, you know, executive action as the prospects of legislation on Capitol Hill to pass gun control reforms remain slim. Um, we talked about the St. Louis gun violence over the weekend. Uh, police in, in St. Louis were kept busy over the weekend with a spate of gun violence that saw at least seven people killed and several more injured. The deaths included a 17-year-old boy who was fatally shot Saturday inside a Jennings uh, business uh, and a man who died in a Saturday morning shootout in a Spanish Lake parking lot. Um, another one out of Portland, Oregon, uh, and this one's back in February. Gunman charged with killing protester in Portland, Oregon. A 43-year-old man confronted protesters against police violence in Portland, Oregon Park, told them to leave, then drew a pistol and opened fire, killing a woman and wounding four other people, the prosecutor said. Uh, another Portland, Oregon story uh, from the prior day. One dead, three hurt in new shooting as Portland violence goes on. Uh, a woman was fatally shot and three others in her car, including two children, were injured in a shooting late Sunday in Portland, uh, officials said Monday. A few days earlier, one person was killed and five others were wounded in a shooting at a Portland park. And that was the one that I just mentioned prior to this where a, a planned protest against police violence was occurring. Um, what else? Here's one um, that came out that, that, bears, a that bears mentioning. Um, way back when, uh, one of the earliest um, seminal events that, that kind of led to uh, the anti-police uh, violence uh, and protest movement and a lot of discussion on gun controls and, and you know, the, the rights of people to, you know, to uh, enforce, um, you know, protections. Um, a judge in Florida has dismissed a defamation and conspiracy lawsuit former Neighborhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman had filed against the parents of Trayvon Martin the teen he fatally shot almost a decade ago in a case that drew international attention about race and gun violence. Uh, and, and it goes on and on. Um, you know, uh, in Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf vetoes bill to prevent municipal firearms restrictions, uh, a bill to help gun owners and gun rights groups seek civil damages from government, governmental bodies that passed firearms restrictions was vetoed on Thursday by Democratic uh, Governor Tom Wolf. So, I mean, there, there are a bunch more here, but you, you get the idea. Um, the, the gun rights uh, debate is a many-faceted 
conversation that we're having in this country. Uh, and it, it's clear that the, the, the directions that this discussion goes and the things that it, it pulls into play um, are, you know, just, just monumental in not only their, their number, but their complexity. A lot of these issues are, you know, very much uh, related to, you know, individual circumstance or community circumstances, what's going on at the time. And what we see consistently through most of these is that there are, you know, organized and um, structured responses and backlash to just about any type of legislation that would impose some level of restriction on the ability to um, to use firearms um, and on the capabilities of these weapons uh, in you know in the 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 public areas or in the private areas for that matter. Um, in many of the cases that that we we're looking at here, um, the the government. Uh, whether it's local, state, or federal, are trying to find any uh, avenue they can find that will, you know, strengthen their ability to exercise some control over gun violence. Uh, one of the arguments that keeps getting brought up as these, you know, pieces of legislation are brought forward is you know the the counter argument that what really is needed is for existing gun laws to be thoroughly enforced and i with that i totally agree we have you know a a whole range of laws uh controlling the the purchase and sale controlling uh shipment uh taking you know transporting guns across state lines um controlling the ownership of guns and the need to secure weapons in the household, uh, controlling um, or, or, or mandating certain levels of gun training uh, prior to the purchase of a weapon, um, you know, and, and, and so on and so on, that what we find is that these laws um, are, are less than enthusiastically enforced. And I, I think, in my opinion, this indicates that there is, is still an underlying issue uh, with guns in this country that we need to seriously address. We need to um, bring into the light of day and have a fair and frank discussion about what owning a weapon in this country should mean and, and what is uh, you know, do we have? Can we get a national standard for weapons ownership? Uh, you know, should there be a national standard for you know registration of gun owners? You know, we have laws that say that you know weapons need to be registered, um, but yet we're seeing, as I mentioned earlier, this this uh, spike in the purchase of these so-called ghost guns uh, that you know, are clearly unregistered and untraceable uh, with the current systems that we have. Now, you know, we definitely need to have a serious conversation on how we address this. Um, is a weapon that is untraceable, uh, is that, 
weapon included in the protections of the Second Amendment? You know, that's a question for our our legislative leadership to address. Uh, if you know, we require the registration of weapons, and we have these weapons that cannot be registered. You know, what do we do about that? That's a discussion worth having. Uh, so, you know, there is there is a whole range of issues around, you know, gun control and gun usage and gun violence in this country that needs to uh, undergo a serious a and thoughtful and deep discussion uh, among, you know, the citizens our legislators, you know, state and federal, um, you know, our police agencies, we need to gather, you know, input from all of these entities and use that in conjunction with the laws that we already have on the books with, with developing and implementing a cohesive strategy to, to better, um, not regulate, but to better control to better uh, protect the citizens to better protect gun owners um, you know and and all involved from the outcomes uh, of all of these weapons you know I'll, I'll close on this note um, you know there are 330 million uh, individuals in the United States of America uh, there is something like um, almost two guns, if not more, per person in this country. Um, and, you know, that's a problem that, you know, we also need to take account for. So we've got a lot of things that, you know, can, can drive future discussions. And we're going to have those discussions right here on Fired Up because uh, that's what we do. We talk about the mechanics of politics as it impacts our everyday lives uh, and we look for our calls to action and our ways of, of practicing activism that we can use in order to affect the changes uh, to make society the, the place that we believe it should be. So that's going to wrap it for this, this week. I thank everyone for listening. Again, if you have comments on the show, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, this is Steve. I host the show each week. Please stay safe. Have a great week. And I will talk to you all again in seven days.